Welcome to the VVV Podcast. Today, we are joined by Tudor Malena, co-founder and CTO, as well as Caius Manai, co-founder and product manager at Obscuro. Obscuro is a decentralized Ethereum Layer 2 privacy-centered rollup designed to achieve scalability and prevent maximal extractable value. Unlike other L2s, it's a completely trustless and decentralized L2. It takes processing from ethl one and allows lower transaction costs, while keeping all transactions and the internal state of application contracts encrypted and hidden. Existing Ethereum apps can move to Obscuro for virtually no cost. Trusted execution environments allow Obscuro to offer smart contracts, decentralization, scalability and privacy, all the while rendering MEV insignificant. Hi, how's it going? Good, thanks. I'm really excited for this. Um, so yeah, we're just yeah. waiting for a few other members of the team to join and get started, hopefully. How many are we going to be in total? Um, I think there's five of us. Okay, okay so all right, so we've got Gavin. Hi, guys. Hi, Gavin. Hey, everybody. Mike here also. Hi, Mike. Great to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Just trying, I think, as, as we have two other people joining, but we can kick off whenever. I think uh, Case alone could handle all the questions if needed, but we're a variety of voices if needed. Uh, but in the interest of time, we're happy to, to jump into it if you guys want. Okay. Yeah, with great pleasure. Um, let me see. Let's start with uh, some of the questions which have the name uh, Mike next to them. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> while we have you on the mic, uh, we can already get going with the relevant questions. Um, but before we get started, maybe um, you can do a, a quick intro about Obscuro, what you guys are actually doing and building, um, you know, who the team members are who have joined us today, what their role is, and so on. Yeah, and in fact, that's probably best uh, for the founders. The start case is one of the founding teams, so I think it'd be fantastic if case if you want to pick that one up um, yeah sure thing um so there's a bunch of others probably the better half of the team has, has not joined um too busy building and um so we're building an l2 on top of ethereum uh, top of ethereum and it's an l2 like other l2s that scales ethereum gives us cheaper transactions but crucially it also provides privacy and it provides a special form of privacy um, it provides uh, both transactional privacy and computational privacy. So it's not just about you know privacy to enable tokens to move from user to user. A lot more deeper than that. I guess you know we'll sort of go into the complexities and exactly what it unlocks throughout the course of this AMA. Um, but that's what we're building. And um, as a team, um, almost all the team has um, has come from a company called R three. So this is where we all met. Um, at R3, um, you know, we had various various positions. I, you know, I, I was one of the lead product managers. Mike um, was head of product. Um, James was chief engineer and helped design Corda. Corda is the blockchain platform that um, that R3 built. Um, Gavin was COO, and Tudor was one of the um, lead engineers for, for for the Corda platform. And uh, yeah, so we met there probably about five years five years ago, and. Um, you know, having sort of built and delivered Corda to, to, to be one of the, 
the most successful enterprise blockchains in the world, um, we decided we wanted to, to go and do something in the public space. I guess, you know, we kind of felt that deep in our hearts, that was, you know, kind of where we wanted to be. That was the allure. That, that's where we, you know, that was where, that was most natural for us. Um, so, um, so we, yeah, we founded Obscuro and um, decided, you know, Ethereum was the place we wanted to be. Um, we spotted an opportunity in the L2 space um, to, to bring privacy. Um, so, yeah, so we founded the company and then we added some amazing others to the team. So we got Pedro, who's not on the call, but he was um, one of the core engineers of, of Avalanche. Um, we have Matt, who um, joined us from Goldman Sachs, who brings a lot of um, financial knowledge. Um, yeah, and that's uh, that's pretty much us. Um, I, I'm not sure if we've got James on or not yet. Um, I have invited him to speak. Uh, I can see him being uh, in the AMA. Oh, yeah, I but, see him. Uh, once he has accepted, then he will also be able to talk as well. All right. Okay. <laughs> While we're waiting for James, um, yeah, let's, let, let's continue. Okay. So the very first question is, can you share any info of, on your team? How many employees, where did most of you come from that, that you already have covered, but how many employees do you have in total? And then we'll have uh, a few follow-up questions. Yeah, sure. Um, so today we're a, we're a team of nine. Um, so I, I covered most, but I forgot of Moray. Uh, he's the, the most recent um, uh, joinee on the team. And um, Moray's incredible. Moray's, um, uh, he's got a PhD physics and uh, he was a researcher at Cambridge University and spent um, a while in the Antarctic as well researching there and he's just an incredible engineer so he's he's the only one that I left out in that first intro um, so that's it yeah we're, we're a team of nine currently um, and we're we're soon going to be expanding the team again um, yeah okay thank you what is the different strategic goal between Corda and you all relates to team because of because they are from R3? Okay, it looks um, like my name is put against this one. If you want me to take it, yes. <laughs> Over to you, Mike. Uh, sure, yeah. So Corda had a very different goal in the sense that it was uh, a permission blockchain. So uh, it was uh, for the purpose of having a known set of participants. Uh, in its origins, those known set of participants were all banks. Uh, we later expanded it out to finance broadly and then started taking it out into insurance and other industries, but really different problem domain. Uh, regulated assets is also a very big area that Corda focused on. So <clears throat> you fundamentally end up with some different requirements. Uh, one of the key things with Corda, though, was privacy was a requirement. So it was something that was mandated for pretty much any of the, the um, transactions that would occur on chain. So we were very focused on bringing privacy to it as one of the key characteristics of Corda. Um, but when we move over to the public blockchain space, uh, we are very much looking, you know, in a different problem domain, obviously. Uh, it's uh, much more. Oh, excuse me, Mike. I think you dropped out for me. Uh, the risk of everyone working remotely. Um, okay, yeah, not think... a problem. So I, I, I'll, I'll continue from my, where Mike left off. So yeah, so, so, so Corda was very much about solving enterprise use cases. Um, if anyone follows that space, um, they, they actually landed something pretty incredible recently, which is they finally bought DTCC on chain. 
um, DTCC are a CSD, so they're the Central Securities Depository, right? And if you are in the US, any sort of equity instruments needs to be registered and live at a CSD, right? It, it, it's the store of who owns what. So when you buy a share in Apple or whatever, the CSD is where it gets stored. Um, and in bringing the um, DTCC on chain, on Corda is enormous because prior to that, every instrument would just be a shadow copy on the blockchain, right? You'd be able to sort of like move it on the blockchain, but fundamentally you then had to move it at DTCC else it was not legal because it's kind of enshrined in law, right? That all assets must be registered and live in the DTC system. But now that's on chain. You're in this position where the blockchain is the golden source of truth, right? And so, you know, that's the kind of things we were focused on, regulated assets and bringing those regulated assets on chain. And, okay. and but, you know, in terms of sort of where we are today, well, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's very different. Right. We're, fo we're focused on the public space. We're focused on crypto assets, at least in the sort of short to medium term. But in the long term, we'd like to believe that, you know, these two worlds, that sort of enterprise, that sort of regulated space can start to converge with this space. In fact, I'd probably say it's inevitable, right, that at some point they're going to combine. And so I think, you know, we'll find that the strategic goals with both Obscuro and Corda start to align quite tightly. Do you think there's an inherent risk in providing anonymity when you talk about regulated industries? Because there's, you know, when you think about some of the uh, different uh, platforms and softwares which allow you to obfuscate sources of funds, for example, that's always a, a big red flag, right? And there's a, a lot of uh, implications which could stem from that. Do you think that's that's going to be a hurdle for you to take? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. I think ultimately, you know, the regulated space comes with regulation, right? And part of those regulations are know your customer, AML checks, um, adhering to sanctions, all that sort of stuff. And there's, and there's no real way of getting around, it, right? We either operate in the regulated space or the unregulated space. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, being, being, you know, anonymity is one thing, right, at some point. So, you know, you could be anonymous at the point of transacting, for example. You don't need the whole world to be able to see what transactions you're making. Sure, you can remain anonymous then, but at some point, it has to go on record, right, that you're now the owner of particular assets or you've sold this many assets and, you know, you now owe the tax man this much or, you know, you need to sort of abide by whatever regulations it is that apply to your country. But I don't think sort of, you know, I, I think there's a sort of mixing of, well, you know, anonymity is bad and it's not because, you know, banks today operate inside, um, you know, they do dark pool trading, right? Which is, you know, a specific zone where they can trade in private without the rest of the world knowing because they're trying to solve a specific problem, which is they don't want to move the markets. They don't want sort of observers to, to figure out what their trading strategies might be. But at the end of whatever trading cycle, they have to record everything to what's known as the consolidated tape. Um, and that's kind of like, you know, if you sort of look at the some of the thinking behind Obscura, we have this idea of a revelation theory, right, which is where, you know, you can trade in private, you do whatever it is you want in private, but at some point you make it public. And that's kind of, you know, there's a there's a strong parallel there to, you know, the dark pool trading scenario and tape and us kind of revealing everything out in the open after some period of time. 
What would you say is the true competitive advantage of Obscuro versus the other CK blockchains? That's a good question. Um, so I think when we think about ZK blockchains, we can probably think about them as two distinct groups, right? We have the ZK rollups and we have the, the privacy chains and they're, and they're very different, right? The, the ZK rollups are about scaling. They're not about privacy. So if you look at StarkNet or um, ZK Sync, they are leveraged in the fact that zero knowledge proofs give you um, this succinct ability to take a bunch of transactions, um, validate them, generate a single proof, and then post them to chain. And because they're succinct, it allows you know everyone to kind of validate them um, much quicker than it does if they were to all you know create generate the proof, right? So it's it's a scaling solution. Um, and then you have the um, the the zk chains that are trying to achieve privacy. Um, and they're generally UTXO based, right? You know, we think of Zcash or Aztec protocol and the problem they're solving is indeed privacy, but it's a special type of privacy. Again, it's, um, it's the kind of privacy that Eric Hughes talks about in the Cypherpunk manifesto, right? It kind of takes over where, where Bitcoin ends and, you know, it's trying to give people the ability to truly keep their transactions private. So I send you token X and we never want anyone else to ever know I sent you token X or how much token X was or indeed who me and you are. Um, but that's not what we're really about. So we leverage a technology um, called um, trusted execution environments. And that's a technology we've worked with about five years at R3. And these are, um, these are hardware, uh, these are hardware solutions. Um, so in, in, in most Intel chips, you have this section of the chip um, called a trust execution environment and in Intel it's called SGX specifically, that's their brand name for it. And it's a, it's a portion of the chip that is impenetrable, right? It's impenetrable, not just to um, remote attacks, but also to local attacks. So the idea is even, uh, even if you were to sort of have access to the chip and you started attacking it with an electron microscope, whatever it is, it would be incredibly difficult, if not impossible to, to take any information from it. Um, so that's what we're leveraging and what that gives us is it gives us the ability to deploy the EVM in its entirety. So it's not even about sort of EVM compatible or EVM equivalent, it's literally the EVM. So you get the EVM, but you get the EVM with complete privacy, right? Not just transactions, but the contracts themselves are enshrouded in privacy, right? Everything's encrypted. So whether it's a transaction or whether it's the processing inside the contract, it's all kept private. So an example of this is, you know, let's say you, um, you transact on Facebook. Let's say you, you know, a transaction might be something like uh, you send a message to someone um, and sure you can keep that private. But after you've done that, there's a whole bunch of processing that happens on the Facebook servers. And that's private because it lives on Facebook servers only and nobody else gets to see that. But on a blockchain, something like Ethereum, everyone sees everything, right? So it's not just the transaction that needs to be kept private, but all the processing that happens afterwards also needs to be kept private. It's kind of like, you know, the, almost like the switch from sort of HTTP to HTTPS. I think that's, you know, that's inevitable and that's going to happen. And something like Obscuro, you know, it, it, it gives you that. So I think that's kind of like our, our true competitive advantage. We get computational privacy. Um, as developers, you get access to the entire EVM. So you don't even have to change your dApps. 
you can take an Ethereum DAP today and redeploy it to the Skiro, and you'll get a privacy-preserving version. Um, if you're an end user, continue to use MetaMask. So nothing changes. It's just like using Ethereum. Um, and um, yeah, and, this, and that's pretty much it, I guess. I guess one other thing is um, we, we did this blog post series um, called The Privacy Trilemma, and we talk about how we think Obscuro is uniquely positioned to solve it. So The Privacy tri Trilemma is um, about um, being able to have um, privacy, but with smart contracts, and at the same time still be decentralized. Could you maybe uh, elaborate on uh, those privacy, uh, on your privacy USP in comparison to other privacy focused blockchains like Monero or Secret Network, for example? Yeah, sure. So, so Monero really is just about transactional privacy, right? Um, I can send you um, to the Monero token and it's, it's completely private um, just between me and you. No one else knows the amounts. You receive it and you're sort of confident, you trust in the network that you are now in ownership of this particular amount of Monero and, um, and I no longer own it. It leverages you know, UTXO to, to do that. Um, so that's kind of like one side of thing. And then Secret Network is very similar to us because they also use trusted execution environments. So the use cases that apply to, um, to Secrets are very similar to the use cases that apply to, um, to Obscuro. So, you know, things like if we were to take um, a DeFi contract, let's say something like Aave. Um, so Aave is all about borrowing and, um, and, and lending, right? Um, and with, with Aave, um, if you um, borrow, um, a bunch of, you know, whatever token, you have to provide collateral, right? And um, if the market moves um, against you, then you have to provide more collateral. Um, but, you know, there's this, there's this level where you could get liquidated, right? And in a bear market, when the market starts moving down, you have these um, liquidation hunters. They go out and they go, right, I can see that, you know, Bob is close to liquidation. So I'm going to move the market. And while he's asleep or whatever, I'm going to force... Um, force him to sell his position and I'm going to take it all. Um, and with something like Obscura or Secret where you have computational privacy or we could call it programmable privacy, you could take Aave, you could redeploy it and you could say, I'm going to keep everything public, but all I'm going to do is just change a bit of the logic such that liquidation levels are now kept private. Um, and that would make for a much fairer, more equitable um, version of Aave, right? Because now anyone that's sort of borrowed doesn't have to fear these liquidation hunters that will go out and force them to liquidate their positions. So, you know, that's an example of, you know, where you can take a contract and you can just kind of like program the bits you want private and the bits you don't want private. And that's very different to saying, okay, all I can do is transfer a token from A to B. And if I understood correctly, that's not something which you could do with um, those two, comp or with that one competitor, which is more close to the secret network. Yeah, so you can't do it with Monero. Um, you can certainly do it with Secret. Um, so, you know, in terms of how we compare to the Secret Network is, well, we both have the same technology, which is we both leverage trusted execution environments and we're both decentralized networks and so on and so forth. Um, where we differ is that um, the Secret Network have placed a bet on the Cosmos ecosystem. Um, so that's where they've, you know, that's where they've built their home. Um, they're leveraging the Cosmos SDK and, um, you know, the Kepler wallets and all that great stuff that comes with Cosmos. 
Um, but we, we're placing, you know, a different bet, right? We think the Ethereum ecosystem is where it's at. And that's why we're building on Ethereum and, and not just sort of like, you know, we're not a side chain, but we're an actually, we're actually an L2. We strongly believe um, that Ethereum's roadmap, um, the L2 enabled roadmap is probably the future of, of blockchain. And so that's kind of, you know, where we're placing our bets. Um, we think that, you know, Ethereum has the greatest liquidity of any network out there. Um, it's, it's DApps are the most well-known. It has amongst the strongest communities. Um, so yeah, that's just, we, we're effectively just placing bets on different ecosystems. Understood, thank you. And just to quickly deviate, could you maybe also uh, just briefly outline what our three stands for? You know, what, what kind of a company it was and what you and your team were involved in our three. Okay, so why don't I take that? Definitely, James, yours. Okay. Um, I can't believe we're doing this on the day of the Queen's funeral, but uh, thanks everyone for dialing in. I, I'm in the US at the moment and it's a really big deal here as well as the UK, I guess. Um, so R3, um, well, it doesn't actually stand for anything. That's the first thing. <laughs> um, but uh, the founder's name is a guy called David Rutter. So there's probably some association there. Uh, it started life as a a consortium of financial service businesses uh, looking at blockchain and how to adopt blockchain in general to financial services. Um, and it very quickly attracted uh, the world's biggest banks, starting with Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. Um, I, I was lucky enough to join R3 as it, as it was getting going. Um, and it's, it's a really cool company. It, as Case has mentioned, I think it is an enterprise blockchain company. Um, and uh, we and what we're doing is completely different. We're we're much more, if you like, part of the Ethereum community. Um, you know, open source, open governance, um, open control. Um, so so the the culture is a different, but uh, there's no question that um, R3 produces some amazing software. Um, it, it's called a solution. Actually, it now powers or is powering uh, DTCC, which is a depository. Uh, of, of financial trades for the U.S. financial system, so it's it's that kind of uh, legacy of capability, uh, which we we as a team we're part of building that. Uh, we've taken some of that thinking with us, um, but the way we do things is is very different. Thank you. That's very interesting. And the reason why I'm asking is that many times we see teams or individuals go into the blockchain space without any prior relevant experience or worst case, they had some experience which was somewhat related, but they failed in their previous ventures. And that, that's usually for us something which you also look at and which can already lead to a rejection of a project by our research institute, for example. And it's, it's good to know. And I know that the research team obviously considered your past experience as well. So, you know, it was important to underline that you guys come from a background which is already very relevant and brought a lot of uh, relevant learnings and experience with you into what you're building now. Yeah, well, I think one, one thing we should note is that uh, all of us, you know, although many of us came from R3, we actually all joined blockchain first. And uh, for myself, I got involved in Ethereum in the end of 2014, the beginning of 2015. Um, so really, you know, before mainnet launched, for example, and, um, 
you know, I believed in the and believe in the power that this technology will change the world. And and, and um, what we're doing now is is to step away from the enterprise space, um, but to look at potentially much wider adoption um, in the open space. So it, it's you know, it's incredibly exciting to to continue to work on this uh, to see it develop. Um, and and we believe that you know the potential we've seen amazing use cases so far, but we've just seen the tip of the iceberg. And I suppose the whole point with Obscuro is is that privacy uh, enables new kinds of applications that where the application itself has to keep secrets, um, but it also enables potentially much wider adoption. Uh, and I think there's you know there's a question in the AMA about where we're going, and what we see in five years time, but but mass adoption is certainly part of it. I agree totally. Thank you. And I also have to, to make a, I have to compliment you guys because you got the questions in advance and, um, you know, you also obviously collected some of them in, in your own server. But there are a couple of tough questions in there which some other projects would have tended to remove. So I really appreciate that you guys have kept everything in there. And um, this leads me to the next question, which, which is one of those tough ones. Um, where the person states for TEE, there are already a bunch of vulnerabilities. You can't just Google TEE vulnerabilities or SGX security issue. Is it really that safe as the Obscure team advertises? Uh, so I think uh, Judah's going to pick this up. Yep. Thanks, James. Uh, right. So, um, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> so, TEEs or trusted execution environments is an amazing technology which would have been unthinkable even 20 years ago. So to be able to execute a program hidden even from the computer itself and to prove to anyone what program is actually running. That's a big breakthrough by uh, CPU manufacturers. Like any tech, it is not bulletproof. There's no bulletproof software or hardware. Maybe zero knowledge proofs, but uh, we don't know yet. And, but these is a tech that is evolving constantly. So it's been going through many iterations. There's been hacks, there's been fixes, and manufacturers uh, fix them all the time. So they, it's a constant uh, battle. We are very aware of this battle. And we, uh, if you look at our white paper, we actually embraced this. So we haven't advertised, we, we haven't based our solution on the assumption that these are invulnerable. On the contrary, we assumed they are vulnerable and um, we devised the entire protocol to mitigate these vulnerabilities. So we haven't optimized for the case of um, these being hacked because they are not hacked. They are hacked very rarely and uh, it's generally under laboratory conditions. There's no um, to this day, I mean, maybe 10 years ago, yes, but nowadays hacks are super rare and they're very limited and uh, very expensive, very, very expensive. Anyway, so our protocol uh, addresses this by introducing elements similar to optimistic rollups, so challenges. So in case someone hacks an SGX and tries to do something nefarious like steal funds or uh, alters the state, anyone on the internet with an attested CPU can challenge 
that uh, roll up the data and uh, is rewarded. And so uh, same as optimistic rollups, basically a state cannot uh, be altered. So it's a one of n, basically a one of n trust model. Anyone can, uh, can challenge. Um, so another way to look at it is if uh, TEs get hacked during Obscuro's lifetime, it's not the integrity of the ledger. It's not the user funds, basically, that uh, get that can be stolen. It's the actual privacy that gets compromised. So uh, the hacker can see the data inside, uh, might might be able to see the data uh, of of all the users, basically, like like a public, like a normal blockchain. So it, Obscura will degrade to a uh, typical blockchain in case that happens. So we call this, we sacrifice uh, privacy, but we don't sacrifice integrity. Yeah. Thank you. And Thanks. that also leads to the next question for you, which is CK EVMs are traditionally very centralized. Can you walk us through how yours is decentralized? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, so decentralization was one of the main uh, goals we had for uh, when building Obscuro. So we didn't want to build, uh, we didn't want to operate anything. We didn't want to uh, want to build a solution for the community, not for us to maintain. So, but let's uh, look a bit at the uh, what decentralized and centralized means for rollups, because that's uh, that's what we're building and that's what the that KEVM, I assume that KEVM rollups. I assume that's a question um, about. So generally for rollups, uh, people um, define two stages. One is a block or rollup production, and the other one is a block or rollup verification. So these are the two uh, stages. So something produces rollups and pub and different ways with a proof or whatever. And they get published and they get verified by someone and validated, let's say. And each type of rollup has a different uh, approach to these. Now, the community uh, and Vitalik himself believes that um, verification needs to be decentralized. So that's essential, but block production. Uh, doesn't need to be fully decentralized. So it can be partially decentralized or centralized. And currently all the roll-up solutions that we are aware of have a centralized uh, block, block production uh, phase. Obscuro, on the other hand, doesn't, doesn't have a... So Obscuro, our protocol Obi features a decentralized block production uh, stage. We can do that easily because we uh, use TEs, so we can generate a, a fair and simple uh, algorithm of assigning a leader for each round by actually generating random numbers inside the TEs, which is a luxury that the other rollups don't have. So, in so in that sense, our block production is a bit more is more decentralized than the other rollups, and but on the block verification side. Uh, Let's look a bit at optimistic and at ZK rollups, because Obscuro kind of lies in between them. So zero knowledge proof rollups is there's a sequencer, a central node that uh, picks a bunch of transactions, 
and then there's someone who generates a proof that there were indeed those transactions signed by users who transition states from A to B. And then the different the state diff is published to with a proof is published to the Ethereum mainnet to a, to a uh, smart contract there who verifies the proof. So basically, the uh, Ethereum network verifies the proof that the state was correct. So it's decentralized. Verification is fully decentralized on the Ethereum network. So that's kind of the uh, let's say the best uh, the best option. Optimistic rollups, um, on the other hand, they publish the data and the rollup with a state, a new state, and then anyone can challenge that state. So they have a mechanism of, um, and anyone with a stake can can say, okay, no, uh, I got a different state, and then there's logic to find who who is the winner, who is who is the uh, who is right, basically. The challenger or the original um, uh, roller producer. So that relies on uh, on the community, basically, of uh, L2 nodes for this proof. So, but in Obscuro, it's it's kind of in the middle, right? It's um, so the TEs produce rollups, they publish them. The smart contract verifies the signature that it, it came from a tested. Uh, SGX enclave, basically, which means unless there was a hack, which is unlikely, this is a valid rollup, right? So that gets published. But then there is a mechanism of uh, challenging, similar to optimistic rollups. So anyone from the community, one of N, can say, yep, I agree, or nope, I disagree with this, I, I got a different result, or I think there's a uh, invalid transaction in this rollup. And so a special procedure is started when that happens. So from a block verification point of view, I'd say that uh, Obscuro kind of lies in between, in between the optimistic rollups and zero knowledge rollups. Okay, thank you. And to, to uh, uh, build on that, that question, um, CK, EVMs traditionally take 12 to 24 hours to produce one block. How does Obscuro achieve faster blocks? Uh, right, I mean, this is not really a technical um, uh, problem. It's a matter of a trade-off, right? If, if you produce uh, roll-ups or blocks, layer two blocks less frequently, it means the finality for the users is uh, is the strong finality is kind of happens later, right? Because they're not on the, the transactions are not on Ethereum yet. So you have to trust some layer two node. That's uh, they will. So it's a soft finality until they're published on on the layer one. So that's kind of. Uh, but this comes with the advantage of transactions on the layer two being much cheaper, because the overhead is uh, is lower. So publishing less frequently means. Obviously, the especially for your knowledge uh, rollups, you can squeeze many more transactions in a single proof, which has the same size. So users might pay much much less, basically. So so that's the reason why uh, they picked a longer period. So this is a matter; it's a trade-off between for each network. They have to, depending on the use case, they target. 
they pick this trade-off between finality and cost, basically. So cost of settlement on Ethereum is expensive. So you have to choose wisely, basically. Yes, that makes sense. Thank you. And now we have a question for Mike. And, you know, it's interesting because that was one of the questions which uh, someone else avoided uh, when we would like to address the topic. So I, I appreciate you, you know, being open to discuss this. And the question is, with the recent Tornado Cash news, is there any fear your blockchain could be blocked? Yeah. <laughs> so I think, of course, there's fear of that. Let me let me start, though, with um, <clears throat> just some baseline stuff is one is what what are we trying to build? Whose problem are we trying to solve? We have no intention of becoming the ultimate mixer platform. That's that's not really what we're setting out to do. <clears throat> we very much uh, think that privacy has very practical purposes, unlocks a whole new set of use cases for Ethereum, brings a whole new set of asset classes potentially onto, onto Ethereum at a later stage. So privacy is kind of a baseline for doing a lot of things. But for, for us, though, we when we think about um, how we would be viewed in the eyes of a regulator. Oh, sorry, Tudor, can you not hear me? I'm getting a message from Tudor saying you can't hear um, me. I can hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're sorry, good, thanks. Mike. Um, thanks, James. Um, th this is the problem with watching back channel conversations. Apologies, guys. The really what we're trying to do is, is create, you know, privacy is for good guys. And I, I stole that from some other privacy platforms. Apologies. It was in the middle of a paragraph and it really stuck out for me. And that, that's the problem we're trying to set out to solve. So we do think about regulators a lot. We, we think about the back of our minds uh, primarily because we came from a regulated background. So we're quite familiar with what the regulations are and how to apply them. That said, uh, it's a very new space. So anything I say after this, um, I'm going to couch with the fact that this is our current view, uh, and it's a view that we're going to have vetted by our lawyers. So, and this is that's that's really what we're in the process of doing today. So this is our understanding. I wouldn't take this as, as advice if you're going to build your own privacy platform. But let me give you an analogy. For us, we we feel we are a transport layer, and if you look at the financial system today, I think of SWIFT. SWIFT is, you know, very well known with the sanctions recently, and SWIFT is themselves their transport layer, right? Regulators do not expect that SWIFT operates their network in the clear. They do not expect that they put all the transaction records out in the clear. They have a simple expectation that privacy, obviously, for the purposes of conducting transactions is necessary, and that the records of those transactions are something that should be accessible by regulators, uh, but don't need to be accessible by anybody in the world. And in fact, it's one layer above the stack you can think of. They're the transport layer. They provide that secure, encrypted environment for transactions. The banks are required to, re to report on transactions, to monitor transactions, and it would adhere to the, uh, the Foreign Accounting Task Force, uh, FAP, as it's often known, or OFAC, which implements sanctions in the U.S. They're, they, the banks themselves are expected to perform that, not SWIFT. So we very much want to create an environment where we're providing uh, the, a secure environment to perform transactions, but also to provide some tools so that the contracts that, that ride on top of the platform can adhere um, to regulation if they see fit, if they feel it's necessary. Now, of course, it's their responsibility um, to see if, they're ne if it's necessary or not. But we think we can provide some pretty basic tooling uh, to allow them to not have to go implement this over and over again. So, uh, for example, to be able to report transactions through their contract um, on demand to an investigating authority, right? So that's the investigators would contact the contract. Uh, we would give them 
very basic contracts that can allow them to export those in the clear and they can be handed over if needed. Now, that's that's a choice of the contract at that point and the, the DAP publishers uh, as to how much they want to implement or not. But for ourselves, we absolutely want to create an environment where privacy can be viewed as a benefit and um, it can be used to do things that expand the number of things we can do on blockchain. So a bit long-winded, but hopefully that answered it. No, that answers it very well. And I appreciate your approach to the entire topic. I think that makes the most sense. And it's also very relatable if you use the example of the banks. And many of the questions which, which came in during the AMA have been around the regulatory framework and environment. So it, I think it's important that we have addressed it. Um, let me just double check some questions which touch on the topic. So, you know, to make sure that we have covered it from sure. all angles. Yeah, and of course, Chinese cash so, put it in everybody's mind, right? So, it's, yes. So, one question by by Brian was: Do you see a scenario where the SEC or regulators at some point cracking down on anything that isn't totally transparent that they don't control? And if so, what do you think can be done to help towards this? Or will Obscuro always be as it is designed and ignore ignore influence? What was the question about the SEC? Is that correct? Yeah, well, so yeah. he. So well, I would say I'm going to hand this one over to uh, Mike. Um, can I, can I, I have a stab at this? The, I just want. No. Yeah, I, I just want to say. You yeah, know, please, I, James. I, think, I was going to say, I think James is a better place for that one. Yes, I think he's implying that the banks, to a certain degree, are either controlled by the government or have to report to the government. So, you know, do you see a scenario where you. You know, either either voluntarily or involuntarily, get put into such a position. James, it might be good if you take this, particularly since uh, so I, I'm familiar with the regulatory aspect around OFAC and FAT, but James is much more familiar with the SEC side. Well, I'm not going to answer about the SEC specifically, but uh, you know, in in general, this this for me, this actually is one of the most exciting things of this uh, this endeavor for me is is finding the right balance um and there is a tension obviously between privacy and criminality um you know uh criminals need uh privacy i suppose or they desire privacy um but so do decent honest people uh, and the vast majority of users are decent and honest people and and privacy in some sense i think is a right um and and we I mean, if you think about our daily lives, we expect privacy uh, and we recognize that, that, you know, sometimes we have to forego privacy um, for the sake of, let's say, society. But in general, um, you know, we, we treasure privacy very highly, at least I think the people working on this project do. And so, um, you know, we, we do not get out of bed in the morning thinking, let's build a, a platform. What we want to do is uphold, you know, the right of everyday people to have privacy in their transactions and to have all these new use cases. Um, and what we do not want to do, particularly, is be involved in difficult decisions. Uh, we thought this through a little bit. Um, you know, if if a regulator or a nation comes knocking and says, "Well, we'd like uh, data on this person or their activities," you know, it's it's a really really tough. Uh, process to go through to decide whether to reveal information. Um, and, 
you know, people, governments say, well, we're a bona fide government, so give us the, give us the information. And we, you know, I see, I see organizations having to make decisions about who's bona fide and who is not. Um, and it's a horrible choice. Uh, and and then that view changes as well over time. You know, some one day a government is legitimate and the next day it's illegitimate. So I think what we're trying to do and what we would like to do is, is have a solution, as Mike says, that empowers people to report uh, as laws oblige them to. But, but that is their responsibility to report. We don't want to have to make difficult decisions. Uh, we don't particularly want, let's say, a, a backdoor or anything like that. Um, and um, we will do what we can to build a platform that supports lawful use and, and dissuades illegal use, uh, but without having to get into that case-by-case -case, uh, decision-making process. Okay, thank you. And so let me double-check on uh, the questions which you have already lined up before uh, we go through more of the comments. So uh, one question is, what is the state of the ecosystem development? Uh, maybe, should I take that one? And maybe you can just touch in general on the, you know, the progress you have made on your roadmap and how much longer you think you will need until you're ready to go to market. Sure, I can answer to start if uh, Case Turnby wants to add to my answer. But I, I should say, you know, we, we're very much um, at the seed stage in our raise and such. So we're, we're still pretty early into this. We're only a team of nine. We do have some partners we're working with, but there's no official agreement signed. So I, I won't mention any names specifically. Um, but we do, we have a handful of partners we're working with who committed to be, uh, to launch contracts when we go live. So I hope we have some more formal announcements on that soon. We should have, for an example, uh, um, swaps up and running, et cetera, uh, when we do go live. So once once we're closed with our fundraising round, my attention turns full time towards growing the ecosystem and bringing partners support. So I think probably the key thing when we think about, <clears throat> and I'm not sure if we've mentioned this, but one of the key things with Obscuro is keeping the threshold very low that you cross to get into Obscuro, uh, both for developers and users. And if you think on the developer side, we don't have an SDK. There's no APIs to learn. There's, there's no rewriting of contracts. You take an existing contract and you can publish it directly to Obscuro. So this means that uh, you, now you can, of course, tweak that to take advantage of privacy more or less. So choose to reveal more data if you so choose, et cetera. But that means partners have very little to no work potentially to do to move to Obscuro. So uh, that's really key for us because you know it's very difficult to grow an ecosystem, obviously. Uh, and who we hope comes first are the dApps. We think the dApps will bring the users uh, and it's very easy for them to do it. The irony of our testnet right now is, is that you go on to testnet simply to prove that your stuff works without change. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an unusual situation, right? You go, you publish your contract, you see that it's private and you see that you really didn't have to change anything to get that working. So um, that's kind of really the foundation of our go-to-market strategy is making sure we keep it that simple and painless. But, uh, but specific names, I'm hoping we have some in the next month or two to, to uh, reveal to everybody, and we'll do that as we sign them up. Uh, we do have people we're talking to, but don't really want to mention the names yet until we have formal agreements with them. So on the roadmap, sure. I think 
Gavin is really well placed to talk about that, actually. Uh, I just before we go on the roadmap, I have uh, you know one relevant question. I, I'm not sure if you have enough context about the project which I'm going to mention, but how does your approach compare to something like Alio, for example, where I believe they offer their own programming language, which is easy to learn and adapt, and they want to have a, a competitive advantage through that avenue. Yeah, and, and Case can talk to this also on the product side. From from my perspective, I think one of the simplest, one of the keys for us and how we go to market is um, really everything I just mentioned, to be honest, is you don't have to learn anything new. Um, there may be some advantages of other languages. I've used enough languages over the years that you see them come and go. And, um, you know, really, I think the EVM is here to stay. And I think that uh, the languages that support EVM are the ones that will stick around and Solidity seems to be the dominating one. So that that has so much momentum. It's very difficult in a practical level. I'm, I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening experience this. It's fun sometimes to go just kind of play with a new language, play with a new environment a little bit. But to go past that is is quite an investment of your time, right? And that's what we don't want to ask. Um, I think this is really where some platforms struggle to gain adoption is, is forcing a big investment on the development side. But Case, I don't know if you had anything to add from the product side on that. Um, no, I think that's a good answer, Mike. Um, yeah, I've had a look at Leo, and it, it is a really good language. Um, but there's so many Solidity developers already out there, right? Um, you know, as good as another language might be, it's not better than the language you already know that's already accepted, that already has tons of tools for it. It's loads of frameworks. There's tutorials everywhere. If you get stuck, there's so many places you can turn to. Um, there's so many dApps you can sort of take and then adapt to your own needs. There's just so much out there that it's just so difficult to try and bootstrap an ecosystem around a new language. Um, yeah, that's all I have to really no, say. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It makes makes total sense to me. You know, it's very interesting for us to hear both perspectives because we have, we have spoken um, with Elio as well. And it's, you know, it's always important, I believe, for our community as well to broaden their horizon and to, to see all the different approaches to achieve certain outcomes and to work on certain solutions and, and then weigh for themselves, you know, what they hear makes the most sense. Um, yeah. But let, let's come back to your roadmap briefly. Um, you know, where are you currently at, and you know how much, how much progress do you have to make before you can actually go um, on, you know, you know, take out the market, so to speak. Hi, Sean. Gavin here. Um, yeah, so for the roadmap. Oh, hi, Gavin. Your volume is very low. Volume is very low. Okay. Um, I said it was Gavin. Is that is that much better? You're much yes. better already. Yeah. Okay, great, great. So, um, yeah, the roadmap's available to see at a high level on our on our Discord channel. But um, I'll give you a bit more detail. So, <clears throat> as Mike says, we've got Testnet live now, and um, you know, there's good stuff on there already. We've got MetaMask um, connectivity on there. <clears throat> we've got a fairly uh, impressive wallet extension that really makes a very good user experience with MetaMask when you compare it to other. Uh, privacy solutions. Um, we've got a fork of Uniswap DEX up there as well. So um, you can easily demonstrate there that we've, we've been able to bring over something um, significant already running on the Obscuro testnet. And like Mike says, you can bring your EVM dApps over right now. So you can start using testnet now. And in the future, over the next few weeks, we've got lots of good stuff on the way. 
We've got things like guest mechanics coming on. We've got event subscriptions. So you can use those events um, as a much easier way to update your DAP UIs. Um, and we'll be connecting to an Ethereum testnet soon as well. So you can really start feeling that, um, that Ethereum experience as soon as possible. Um, and then when we're getting into those kind of features, we're really looking to get the feedback from the community so that can help inform us what comes next in terms of uh, priorities. And then there was a question there about when we'll be able to run um, Obscuro nodes. So once we get um, the event subscription out, once we get the connectivity to Ethereum testnet done, then we'll be starting to look at supporting a limited number of user operated nodes. So that's, that's gonna be coming in weeks, not, not months. Um, so a few weeks away, um, and specifically around around mainnet. So mainnet would also be coming on for the first half of 2023. And of course, you'll be able to run Obscuro nodes on mainnet right right from release date for mainnet. So that's a high level, Sean. Um, it's it's worth keeping an eye on Discord to to keep up to up, 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 up to speed on our roadmap. Oh, we do trust me. <laughs> Thank you, mm -hmm. Gary. Um, and. You know, that also leads to the next question, which is, do you have a target group of projects which you would like to attract to build on Obscuro? And that could be mostly gaming, DeFi, NFTs, real world use. And maybe also, you know, whether or not you go for a B2B approach, whether it's B2C, or where you, where you see, where you get the most out of attracting a certain clientele or user base. James, do you want to take this one? Because I know James has a time limit that the rest of us don't have. So um, it would be great. No, no, Mike, you, Mike you, you take it. Cause... <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> um, I genuinely was asking, no, just deflecting. Um, use cases. Yeah, look, I think we, if you look at, I guess there's two stages, right? So we don't, we don't want, um, how would I put it? Uh, there's some great later use cases when there's more momentum around real world assets. And we think those are, are kind of a huge wave of things that can come onto Ethereum, grow the number of assets on Ledger and, and on chain and, and really kind of expand the ecosystem in dramatically, right? And I saw an advertisement from uh, JP Morgan yesterday and it said we process $8 trillion a day of payments, which I mean, that gives you an idea of the numbers that happen in the real, in the, in the real world assets, right? The, so eventually we think that can come onto public blockchain and, and that would be huge. Um, but we've also been around this space long enough to know that those are very slow moving organizations and the assets are difficult to issue, et cetera. And they're still kind of working through that stuff. Um, so we'll, and, and to narrow that a little bit, by the way, we, we would never really go after regulated assets. We, we think that's more uh, territory of our old employer and it's a very different domain, but unregulated assets, some fantastic opportunities there. However, uh, you know, we're a very small team, as you guys know. We're nine now. Um, you know, we'll expand out very soon here. Uh, so we need to get escape velocity. And that escape velocity, we think, will come from targeting existing users, existing dApps. Um, and those are in the categories that you just mentioned, right? It will surprise nobody that we think DeFi, um, GameFi, uh, and, and NFTs benefit greatly from privacy. And, and those are the use cases we hope to target initially. Uh, they're also the easiest to transition over, make small tweaks and get a huge gain. Uh, one of the big things we hope is, you know, there are thousands of dApps that are fantastic dApps that don't have huge traction, uh, particularly in the DeFi space where, where it tends to be more winner takes all, is Obscure is a great chance for those uh, dApps to come over and differentiate themselves, right? Showcase, uh, add privacy to differentiate and have a chance to be a uh, you know, big fish in a small pond and grow with us. 
So that, that's a big part of it also. Um, but there's a lot of use cases that we, you know, we look at continuously. Um, some of what we look at are problems that we, try, we attempt to solve. Um, some are things that we think are net new things you can do. Uh, on the problem side in DeFi, the very first thing you guys probably noticed in the white paper is MEV. Um, and that's one of the things we set out to do. But let me switch to have Case or, or um, James, if you guys want to explain how we target MEV so I don't talk too much. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take it. Um, yeah, so so, 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 so privacy is a spectrum, right? Um, on, on, the, on the one extreme, you have um, the Eric Hughes cypherpunk manifesto view of privacy, and it's all about keeping things private from the government and the man, right? It's all about sort of libertarian views. And then you have a bunch of stuff in the middle, but sort of, you know, if you looked at the other extreme, what is the most simplest form of privacy, right? Well, I'd argue the most simplest form of privacy is privacy that's required only for a few blocks, right? Um, for a few seconds, something really ephemeral. And that's something you can do with Obscura, right? You can sort of say, well, you know, I don't need privacy in general, but what I do need is privacy for a few blocks so I can keep my transactions hidden from those that might otherwise sandwich me, right? Um, or keep them hidden from miners or keep them hidden from whoever it is, right? So there's that whole sort of other side of privacy where it's very ephemeral, but it solves a huge, huge problem that we have today. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a fact that, you know, you go on to Uniswap or whatever and you, you make a big trade. It's almost certain that, you know, the slippage you set is going to be hit at some point because someone's going to come in and exploit that. So it's a tax that everyone ends up paying. So, yeah, so we think that's a big use case um, that can be solved in the most simplest way. Come over to Obscuro and, you know, MEV solve it. Um, so the, the great thing about this team as well is that we're all sort of passionate about different things. Um, so one thing I'm really passionate about is, is gaming. Um, I think gaming is going to be huge, huge use case um, for blockchain. So at the moment, it's mainly about weak on-chain gaming, right? It's where the idea is you have your game running in a centralized server somewhere, but you have assets and those assets can be traded on a blockchain. But I think there's going to be a shift towards strong on-chain gaming, which is games are going to be more and more decentralized. They're going to be infinitely expanded, infinitely duplicatable. Is that a word? I think it is. Um, they're going to be completely open source. They'll be extended in ways that you know, we can't imagine now. Um, and when you look at some of the problems that exist for strong on-chain games, well, you know, they're the typical things like, well, you know, what's the UX going to be like? Is it fast enough? Is it going to be cheap enough? And I think L2s generally solve that. But there's the other issue, which is, well, some games rely on incomplete information, right? Um, a game of chess, that's complete information. You can see your, you know, the other player's moves, and that's part of the game. But lots of other games, particularly sort of you know, strategic games, right? They do require privacy. They require players to be able to keep their moves hidden from other players. They require maps to be generated in private um, or generated in a way such that you only can explore or you can only see bits of the map that you've explored rather, right? You know, it's, it's known as Fog of War and games like Civilization and Starcraft and Command and Conquer and, you know, Age of Empires. Those are great examples of games like that. And, you know, you know that, that whole realm of, of gaming use cases, that can now be opened up as on Obscura, you can start doing that without you know having to resort to anything complex. Just like okay, yeah, I want to keep my map hidden from everyone. You know, make a few changes to your contract, and, and off you go. 
Um, so I'd like to also um, take the opportunity to shout out to Polo, who's listening in, who's um, written some awesome blog posts for us. Um, one of them was on gaming, um, which you guys should check out. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there's some really amazing use cases out there um, with a dose of privacy um, that make them just, you know, exceptional and open up the space hugely. All right. Thank you. And we're going to jump a little bit around with the questions because we're coming up on the one hour mark. And I want to be sure that uh, while the attendance is, is high, um, that we come, uh, cover some of the questions where the community is very eager to get more information on. So, you know, I, I would like to slowly transition into the, into the tokenomics. Um, but before we do so, maybe you can just give us some general statements around how your race has been going so far and whether or not the current market conditions have influenced either the decision-making of potential investors or your own decision-making and where you see the trends currently shifting in terms of uh, strategic partners and capital and so on. Yeah, I can take that. And James, feel free to jump in if you want to um, answer it. Um, the, the, the raise has been going fantastic, actually. So um, we, I will fully admit, I think you'll talk to anybody in not just in our sector, but raising kind of broadly. Uh, about three, four months ago, things got very difficult and slowed down quite a bit. So uh, it was mostly, uh, well, it was obvious what happened in the industry, right? So the obviously with valuations, uh, with the value of crypto going down, a lot of organizations were affected by that. Um, However, we've had some, some investors that stuck with us, which is fantastic, uh, and picked up some really good names along the way. So, um, so we have, currently we have two lead investors. Uh, I'm not sure what the rules are around mentioning their names. I should be careful not to mention their names because we have agreement. Yeah, if in dollars, then don't mention them yet. Yeah, I won't talk to them yet. So, um, but we're very excited about that because, uh, you know, a lot of investors require a lead investor to, um, so if you're not familiar with fundraising, which I wasn't prior to this, uh, a lead investor will typically uh, well, show not only use their brand to showcase the investment, but also do some of the paperwork. Uh, they will help build a cap table, um, make introductions and things, and then they will um, also provide you know kind of an element of due diligence they're willing to share with other investors and things who may not have that capability. So that that's been incredibly helpful. Really increase the momentum. Not quite done yet, um, but we've, uh, we're have we very much nearly there. Um, so we, we expect to close around in the very near future. So uh, slowed down a little bit recently because some of the leads wanted to you know, go back through the cap table and things. So all, all really good feedback, uh, very positive now. So it's, it's, been a, it's been an exciting last six weeks or so when things really picked up a ton of momentum. So, uh, But for the other organizations out there who are currently raising patience, so I think everybody is just moving a little bit slower than normal, but there's still money to be invested. But uh, I'm not sure if anybody else has anything to add that on our side. But that's probably all. I'm probably the closest okay. to it at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same the same trend which we have seen as well. There's uh, a lot of um, investors who have almost completely stopped doing business because they are too afraid of where the market goes and you know the volatility in the market itself but we've also gotten the feedback that the people who are still around are the ones who also make better strategic partners because they don't really want someone 
having a stake in your company who has a tendency to be fearful and potentially either not fulfilling their investment or asking for a refund or not being that strong partner, which you might need throughout a bear market. Yeah, and look, I think there's, a, you know, Warren Buffett always said when the stock market drops, he gets excited. It's like a sale being on, and he could never understand the reasoning of why you wouldn't be excited if your favorite company is on at a sale price and you can get in cheap. Um, the investors who are investing now, I think, have the right mentality. This, you know, you don't wait for the highest valuations to jump into the market. So it's a great time for, for capital, I think, to be deployed. It's interesting because Warren Buffett is uh, one of our um, examples which we study in our VVV Academy. where we, ha we have a very similar video where he outlines his uh, investment thesis and he actually goes into this as well where you want to buy underpriced assets, right? And you don't, do not want to get into something which is already overpriced. Exactly. So for one question around the tokenomics came up and that's for the tokenomics, you have for the public sale allocated 2.6% and the allocation to the talk, to the core team and seed and pre-seed investors is half of the total circulation. Isn't that too high? Uh, let me take that one. Thanks, Sean. So um, it's a good question. Isn't it too high? I think, um, I mean, tokenomics in this space is still very much a learning curve, I think. There's, there's a degree of maturity, but, you know, we've still got a long way to go for tokenomics to be um, uh, fully realized over a long period of time. So maybe in some people's opinion, it's too high, but um, it's worth remembering, really, that the opportunity to gain access to the Obscuro network um, don't only come through a public um, uh, acquisition of tokens, OBX Obscuro tokens, but also the contributor whitelist. So uh, there's an allocation of tokens available there. For those that contribute to the Obscuro project, they can gain access to the Obscuro mainnet through those Obscuro tokens as well. So it's not just restricted to the public sale. And um, it's important to also know that um, a large chunk of the tokens, 50% of the tokens are available um, to the foundation and to the ecosystem um, because we want to be able to make sure that other members of the community can gain access to Obscura using that utility token and they can run their dApps and they can benefit from the privacy capabilities of Obscura um, as, as soon as possible. And that's also reflected in how, how, um, um, how quickly members... Um, taking part in the public sale can gain access to mainnet using that Obscuro token. Um, it's going to be um, uh, uh, that the, there's further work to do on the tokenomics. So um, all the all the tokenomics that's been out there at the moment has been at a proposal phase, but absolutely they'll be nailed down before the token generation event. But um, yeah, gaining access to Obscuro um, as early as possible is is absolutely pivotal. Can you maybe outline some of the use cases for the token? Is it only used for access to the network or are there other use cases? And do you have any deflationary mechanisms in place? So no, no, no deflationary mechanisms in place. The, um, uh, the, uh, the primary reason for OBX to exist is to gain access to the Obscura network. That's, that, that's the purpose of a utility token in, in this case. The, um, there's also worth bearing in mind that the uh, token is also the means of, of staking as well for your, um, 
the Obscura nodes if you're an aggregator so that you can commit to um, to sticking to the rules of the network, you know, sticking to the rules of of the road, if you like, you know, so that the, the Obscura network behaves appropriately and, and you behave appropriately so that if you, if you, um, if there's an instance where you, as a node operator, you put the network in a compromised state, then your stake is um, is 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 taken away from you. So that that that's really the means of the token. I think I'd just to add one thing, and and to to be really clear, you know, we we are not using the this is a utility token, right? We we genuinely believe this has real utility. So you pay for transactions on the network. The validators are compensated for their efforts in the network using the token. That's so. We're very focused on that. Obviously, uh, I have an American accent, so I'm probably more sensitive than most on that. So we're not out trying to raise uh, money right now from any American investors in particular. We're not selling any tokens. In fact, we're only selling um, the investment is not for for any current tokens. Uh, and then we would anticipate when they do go public and live, it's for the purpose of people buying them for use as utility to pay for transactions. And, and it's not really just a CUIA statement, by the way. I think a lot of um, the underpins the value of what we anticipate in the token in the future is, is purely demand for that token to be used on the network. Uh, and that's where we're very focused on how do we drive transactions. And driving transactions means that uh, there'll be a natural demand for the token. Uh, they'll be used to pay for those transactions. I don't know if you have anything else to add, James. No, I mean, um, it, it is interesting. So some of the, some L2s uh, that we uh, look at, as, for example, some optimistic roll-ups and ZK roll-ups and so on, they, they don't have a token <clears throat> because they're running centralized infrastructure. And where we think uh, a token, a utility token makes sense is where you've got decentralized infrastructure. There has to be, um, a way for users of a world computer to pay the operators of the world computer, uh, and that's um, that's where we think uh, you know a utility token makes sense to to enable that in a more frictionless way. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. And we are slowly running out of time. So what I would propose is if you guys maybe pick the most important questions which we have not addressed yet. Um, and then you can feel free to just read them out and answer them, um, because I, I'm not sure which which are the ones you, you deem the most important for the listeners. We're all quietly operating these right now. I'll kick things off. Uh, I'll, I'll take one. Um, it's an interesting one. I thought was will there be a bridge between order and obscure? Um, I guess I guess the answer is um, would you like there to be a bridge? Because um, ultimately, it'll be driven by demand, right? And um, I think when real-world assets become a big deal, um, and they will, and quarter today is the home for those. And personally, I feel that there will be a merging of the private and public blockchain spaces. And I think with us being XR3 and R3 being our biggest investor, um, I think we'll probably be first in line um, for, that, for that bridge. Um, so I guess, yeah, watch, watch this space. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take one. Um, and the question is, could you explain why certain privacy information should become public after some time? Um, and there are, it's, it's a great question. Um, maybe it's one that's not considered that often. 
Uh, I think there are two reasons. Uh, the first is um, we believe as a team that, that probably no privacy solution is private forever. Um, there's, there's always a sort of technology race to, to uh, unearth privacy. Um, and we don't want to make an eternal privacy guarantee because we don't think it's feasible. Um, so that, that's one reason. The other reason is what a uh, link to something we touched on earlier about, about sort of criminal behavior. Um, we think that uh, private, privacy of information has a, what, what we think of as a time value. And um, the, the value of privacy diminishes over time. Uh, at least for certain use cases, it does. Um, and I'm going to point, uh, since we're talking about we're talking about the Queen's funeral today, uh, in the UK, um, there's uh, a statute that says even state level secrets uh, should be made public after a certain amount of time, um, because they become of historic Im importance and uh, historic use. Um, the 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 value of that privacy has diminished. And uh, we think of, of privacy in that sense, that uh, as Kay said, some use cases like um, uh, trading, where it's possible for a, a miner or a sequencer to, to sandwich you and steal your profitability through uh, MEV, um, you know, the value of that privacy diminishes very quickly. Um, there are uh, areas, for example, around corporate use cases where privacy uh, matters for um uh, transaction pricing, um, and also uh, the duty of care that corporates have in man managing privacy of, of certain data. But again, that diminishes over time. And what we've suggested in the white paper as a, an approach to solving uh, the issue of, let's say, preventing uh, criminality is to have an ultimate revelation for uh, information um, that is kept secret, kept private, uh, as a way partly of, of recognizing that it's not possible to keep things secret forever anyway, because technology changes, but also as a way of signaling to to uh, would-be bad actors, um, you know, eventually law enforcement agencies will be able to catch up with you. Um, and and uh, bluntly, if that does ultimately limit the sort of addressable market of Obscura, uh, I think we as a team are comfortable with that. We would, we would rather... Um, do something to uh, to dissuade that that kind of bad use, uh, or illegal usage uh, and sleep well at night. James, I find it very funny you answered that, by the way, because I literally was going to come off mute and ask if you could answer that one. Uh, I would say there's a, a, a side uh, effect of this, by the way. Um, when you are a developer and you move your contract over and you uh, understand this premise, you'll think about the design of your contract in a slightly different way, which is, okay, I have to design so that in a year, I know my this data will be revealed. What design decisions do I make? Uh, and I think that's a great thing because it means that developers are now going to think upfront about the consequences of any potential risk uh, rather than after the fact. So it's it really helps the right behavior. So we have a community question which ties into the topic and it was submitted by Edsa Odell, and he's he's stating with shape shifting NFTs, it's talked about how artists can embed secrets in smart contracts that can be activated at a later date. Will this not leave traders and collectors open to malicious smart contracts without anyone being aware initially? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. Um, it depends. So it depends what powers. There, there might be a standard for this future shape-shifting NFTs. So we, we don't know yet. Uh, but certainly they should be restricted in not having powers to steal funds of a user. So uh, it should be an artist kind of changing the shape of the NFT. That, that's a power the artist has not in affecting any other assets. So the standard needs to make sure of that, of course. I think interesting to this, which is um, there are potentially two models for uh, deploying smart contracts to Obscura. One is where um, the code of the smart contract and the state, the data of the smart contract are kept private. Uh, the other is where the code is made public, but the state is kept private. And I'm really interested in that second case, you know, uh, preserving, let's say, the the uh, secrecy of, of the logic is less interesting to me because I think what we're trying to do is build uh, trustless systems. And how how do you gain the trust of a user that your system, your application is going to work properly? Well, to date, it's always been because they can verify for themselves, although most don't they could, in theory, verify for themselves the, the code, the, the business logic, uh, the rules that the application must follow. Um, and, and that, I think, in many cases, is still going to be necessary. Pe people have to be able to trust these smart contracts, even though they cannot see the internal state of them. And they, can, and, and they, can, they, they can't know what transactions have passed in and out, uh, but they can check that the logic is following you know, rules that have been set out. I think that's an interesting approach because it's going to open up a lot of uh, creative ways for NFT collections and other use cases of smart contracts where you can already, in a trustless way, promise that a certain logic is going to apply at a certain point in time, but no one knows when it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly that. Very interesting. And I, I have one more question which I would like uh, to, to ask uh, from the community, and it's is there any validity in some concerns of quantum computing being a threat to blockchain technology in general and also in the case of, of Obscuro? And I think this goes back to you mentioning that privacy will not remain forever. I mean, I can take that. Um, so in case quantum computers are able to break cryptography, um, there's, there will be lots of problems for lots of software solutions. Um, I mean, it depends what exactly they will be able to break. So hash functions uh, won't be, so integrity will not be affected neither for Obscuro nor for the other blockchains because integrity is reliant on hashes, on, on Merkle trees. So that, which, which are known to be quantum resistant so far. Encryption might be might be vulnerable, but we'll see. We we might change our encryption schemes. So, but Obscure doesn't have this long-term promise of eternal privacy. So we are not really worried about, let's say, what will happen in ten years, in case an encryption algorithm proves to be uh, vulnerable to that. Of course, we'll we'll switch to something else, like everyone else. And like you mentioned before, I think it's not possible for the funds of any of your users to be compromised. It, it would only affect the privacy. 
Correct. Yes, because uh, integrity depends on hashes, so Markov trees, yes. and and that hashes are known to be um, are known to not be affected by quantum. quantum so they can't uh, calculate hashes quicker, basically. Yes. Thank you. And for the last five minutes, uh, I'm happy to close it with um, any of the questions which you guys deem the most important ones, or even if you think that there's one one question which we didn't ask or even didn't put on uh, our document, then please feel free to um, make any closing remarks uh, as you deem fit. You know, some of these questions actually I can bundle into a theme and then point at other people in the group to, to answer, but um, it's kind of what comes next. Um, I notice there's um, downloadable nodes, uh, hackathons, things like that. So where we are today, we have, you know, a testnet live. We'd, we'd love for everybody to jump up there, kick the tires, tell us if the tire falls off. Uh, that's the purpose of the test net, right? So, and get to understand how easy it is to add privacy. So uh, Case will talk about plans for hackathons and things, because um, I think we, we do have some more coming up now that we have a test net live. And then Gavin, if you want to talk about will there be future node runners and test net and such, um, it'd be really helpful to people to understand what's coming. Uh, so just before that, um, there's a question about Poby asked by Joseph. I can quickly address it. Um, so Joseph is asking whether um, there are concerns around Poby and uh, around the consensus um, method of Poby, and if there are other protocols that used it successfully. So Poby, uh, first of all, is not a consensus protocol. So Obscura relies on the consensus of uh, Ethereum. So Poby is a way, a tailored way, a, a tailored way for L2s that use TEs to operate um, on a layer one and use that consensus. And also it, it's a way for challenging. So it's, it's not really a consensus protocol. We're not inventing a BFT. So we don't have to uh, go through all that uh, complexity. So that's, a, that's kind of the uh, big advantage because obviously inventing a new BFT protocol is super complex and, and, and wouldn't, it would make you an, uh, a sidechain. <laughs> you would not be an L2 anymore. I hope that answers it. And, and I'm, going to, um, I'm going to take the last question and turn this into a wrap up, if that's okay. Absolutely, thank you. I'd like to thank everyone. Um, for attending and I hope you found what we've said interesting. Uh, we love engaging with uh, everyone that's part of the community um, and we're to either run more AMAs or you know, tough questions. They're all good questions um, on our Discord or anywhere else. Uh, or perhaps even meet at events. Uh, you know, we're starting to travel post COVID. We're attending global events uh, like DevCon in Bogota. Um, so the question I'm going to address is, how do you see Obscura in five years? Uh, which app is the most popular? How has the tech evolved? Who are the users? Um, the view here, which is, uh, I see Obscura as um, providing the next leg up for widespread adoption of uh, smart contract blockchain technology. And by that, I mean Ethereum. Um, there are obviously other uh, networks as well. Um, 
it is possible that Obscura starts to work with and integrate with other networks. But as we've already said, for various reasons, our, our prime focus is on Ethereum, the Ethereum community. You know, we've always uh, felt that we've been part of it um, ever since we got into blockchain seven, eight years ago. Um, yeah, privacy enables adoption for the mass market. You know, we've always believed that maybe the pioneers don't need privacy. In fact, they want people to see what they're doing. But uh, the mass market demands privacy. Um, and privacy will open up usage, uh, new apps, uh, new user groups, and so on. Uh, which app is the most popular? Well, we are focused from a business development point of view on sectors which we think benefit greatly from this. We have, we're, but we're a small team, and we have to target. Um, you know, we have to target what we aim at. Uh, but we don't want to limit it to only certain. Uh, use cases and and I think the thing that I've learned uh, in technology in uh, uh, thirty plus years is um, that if we can provide something that has utility, uh, is easy to use, uh, is performant, and so on, people will pick it up and use it in ways that we could never imagine. And that, in a way, is the most exciting thing. Um, we want to be surprised, uh, constantly challenged, I suppose, by people coming up with ideas. Uh, that we can't think of ourselves because because we're going to focus on one thing only, and that's building a great platform. Uh, and all of the use cases are going to come from everyone else. Um, so we're not going to pick winners. Uh, we're going to support everyone. Uh, but we will, in the short term, at least, uh, let's say, target um, areas which we think would benefit from the technology. And with that, uh, thank you very much uh, again for joining uh, and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, James. It was a pleasure hosting you guys. And I'm very much looking forward to potentially doing an, a follow-up AMA because we have, we have dozens and dozens of, of questions in the Twitter comments, uh, which we cannot address uh, because of time constraints. And we have even more questions on, on our internal document here. Um, and I think the community is very eager to learn more about your, in my opinion, very novel approach and also a very sensible and practical approach which can truly empower your platform or your ecosystem to become one of the segways to mass adoption. Thanks so much for your time, Sean. Thanks for Thank you. Me. My pleasure. Anytime again. Thank you guys. Thanks, Sean. Thank Thanks. you. For Thanks. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you very much. Bye bye. This recording has been prepared and made available by VVV. It is for informational purposes only and should not be considered a solicitation to sell, buy or subscribe to any financial instruments or products. VVV does not express any opinion as to the present or future price of any instrument mentioned in this recording. The information provided in this recording is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published, but VVV, along with its directors, officers and employees, does not accept any liability for any loss arising from the use of this information as it may change in the future without notice. Any decision made by a party after listening to this recording shall be on the basis of its own research and not based on the information and opinions provided by VVV.